I want to invite you to join me in turning to Zechariah 11. I'll be reading this morning verses 4 through 17. As you're turning there, let me explain a little bit about what you'll find in this text. It, it, it bears a little explanation because it looks different for us. We're accustomed to hearing uh, words of prophecy in Scripture as a spoken word, but what we have in this text is an acted out word, a, a sign act, a sort of a dramatic interpretation of the prophecy that the Lord has for us. Think in your mind for a moment the game of charades. When, when you play charades, you are acting out a scene so that your teammates can try and guess what it is that you're trying to tell them. But with the sign act, we don't have to guess. Because the Lord is calling His prophet to speak and to act, not for the purpose of guessing, but for the purpose of driving home a point. And the point this morning is actually a rather ominous one. It is a warning. Now, ultimately, the book of Zechariah is a great book of, of hope that clearly points us to Jesus throughout, but, but in the hope, uh, we also find a warning. And so as we look to this text this morning, let us hear and heed uh, the warning of Scripture. Would you bow with me as we ask the Lord's blessing on reading and preaching of His Word. Father, as we come to this text, I pray that You would give us the gift of understanding that comes only through Your Spirit so, Lord, I, I pray that this moment I would decrease, that You would increase, that You would speak to Your people, that You would speak to me uh, this morning. Do so, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Thus said the Lord, my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one named Favor, and the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I, came in, I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. 
Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we will often use illustrations to, uh, to, to help uh, explain a text, but this whole text is an illustration. And so we're going we're gonna to look to these, uh, these illustrations and, and through them, try to understand them. They are played out, if you will, in, in a series of, of scenes. And in the first scene that we have here, Zechariah is called to portray the Good Shepherd. Now, I am not an actor, uh, have never been one, um, but but I imagine uh, when an actor prepares to play a role, that the director would would sit him down and, and give him some instruction. Maybe to help inform the way he plays this part would, would, would give him some context to understand how he might portray this role. Well, the first few verses I read is essentially just that. The Lord is, is, is setting the scene for Zechariah to inform how he will go about playing the role of the Good Shepherd. And the first thing that the Lord does to set this scene for Zechariah and for us uh, is to describe the plight of the people. You know, as we've been in Zechariah, we've seen good leaders. But much time has passed. Years have gone by and the setting has changed. Now, at this time, in Jerusalem... There were a series of poor, self-centered leaders who had, who had taken over and they would be indicative of the leadership that would come. Now, biblically, the Lord uses the imagery of a shepherd to describe the leaders for His people. And biblically, the shepherd is to be the servant of the sheep who would give himself over for the growth and the nurture of those sheep. But the shepherds in that day, and maybe quite possibly in ours, have reversed the role. These verses described how they had used the sheep for their own purpose. And then in an an all-too-present-day imagery, they had perverted the Word of God into some form of prosperity gospel, selling the sheep off for slaughter, and then praising the Lord for their wealth at the cost of the sheep. It's a bit of the plight that Zechariah is is acting into. 
And into that setting, he plays the good shepherd. Now, his first action is is to rescue the sheep. He will come and, and steal them out of the hands of the slaughterhouse. Now, in this text, as best I can tell, Zechariah is, is shepherding an actual flock of sheep. But as he rescues this actual flock of sheep from the slaughterhouse, it's meant to point us to a deeper truth, a deeper truth that the people, verse 11 tells us, understood very clearly to be, uh, they understood this deeper truth to be the Word of God. And so, Consider this action. Consider the deeper truth pointing to the good shepherd who would rescue the sheep from pending death. And then in response to that rescue, he would care for them. Now along the way uh, to this uh, stage, uh, Zechariah must have popped into the wardrobe department. And in the wardrobe department, he, he grabs uh, the tools of the shepherd. A couple of staffs. And he named one staff favor and one staff union. Now, more on those staffs and their meanings later, but understand that as he takes these tools of the trade and goes to care for the sheep, he'll have some early success. The text tells us that within one month, he destroyed three shepherds. Destroyed is to remove to get those, those bad shepherds away from the flock. But after that early success in his care for the sheep, things start to turn. If you've ever had a pet or maybe a farm animal, you'll know that there are times when that pet will not respond to your leading. <laughs> and a frustration builds up within us to the point where we just got to get away from them. Well, here, the sheep stop responding to Zechariah's shepherding. He becomes impatient. The sheep then detest the shepherd. And the picture of the sign act is unmistakable. Remember, we're talking about the good shepherd and there will come a day, there has come a day, when the people will reject the good shepherd, seeking their own way. Now, at times, this this rejection looks like a desire for a life of sin. Just an outright rejection of the word, I'm going to go pursue my own desires. Isaiah chapter 1 gives us another indication of what this rejection looks like. At times, it can look like Religious affection with no heart affinity. A do-it-yourself version of religiosity. And in time, the shepherd gives the sheep over to their desires and walks away. That's the first scene in the action here. But Zechariah continues to act out this prophecy. And we see that he will go on 
after walking away from the sheep to break the shepherd's staffs. Every trade has its tools. The carpenter has the hammer. The shepherd has the staff. Now the staff is a, is a multifunctional tool. The shepherd used the staff to, to guide and, and direct the sheep. The, the shepherd uses the staff to discipline the sheep. The shepherd uses the staff, maybe in reverse, to fend off the wolves. When Zechariah breaks the staff, it is a very clear display that he is no longer going to shepherd the sheep. So he breaks favor and union. What do these words mean? How are we to understand them? We'll start with favor. I don't know if this caught you as I read through the text, but when Zechariah broke favor, he, he described it as annulling a covenant. What is this? We've spoken at length about the covenant of grace that God had entered into with His people. A covenant so foundational to His relationship with His people that it could not be changed. That cannot be the covenant that He's describing here. and Indeed, it is not. In the context, when He speaks of annulling a covenant that He had made with all the peoples. We are to understand this as as an agreement, a, a covenant made with His people to protect them from the nations that were surrounding them. As we consider this, as we consider its meaning for us today, we've got to realize something very important. That though there is a seen world, there is just as much a tangible, unseen world. And the Lord our God reigns supreme over the seen and the unseen. There is a spiritual world that is impacting our lives this very moment and the Lord reigns over it all. In that unseen world of spiritual forces, the Lord our God protects His people in ways that we cannot see but we know tangibly as He restrains the forces of evil. This Lord breaks His covenant with the nations around. Breaking favor, He is in essence letting go of the restraint. It's pointing to a time when the nations around will attack God's people and the Lord is stepping away, letting it happen. He removes the restraints that are from without. But more than that, in addition to that, He removes the restraints that are within. The Lord also breaks the union. In the text, he speaks of this union as the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. We had already seen this union broken and we see it further breaking as Scripture goes along. And it is the inevitable outcome 
when the people of God turn away from a focus on the Good Shepherd, and when we do so, we drift towards disunion. There are parallels in our nation of this division that we see here, and it is awfully tempting for us to go there. And and on one hand, we should, but do not settle for focusing on the disunion in our nation. This is speaking to the church. And when we in the church take our focus off of the Good Shepherd, we within the church also drift toward disunion. Scott Sauls is pastor at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville, and this week he wrote a blog post entitled Stepping Away from Unchristian Politics. There he asked a question that I put before all of us to search deep within our own hearts to answer. The question is this. For whom do I feel a greater affection? With whom do I feel most kindred? On one hand, is it the people who agree with my politics but don't share my faith? Or, is it with those who share my faith but don't agree with my politics? question that Saul's is asking, that the Word of God is asking, is this. Is our primary focus on the Good Shepherd? Or is our primary focus on some other system of belief, whatever that system of belief might be? Friends, unity in the church must be Primary, which means that Jesus must be the primary source of our unity. Zechariah acted out what happens when our focus is elsewhere. And when our focus is elsewhere, ultimately the Lord gives us over to our desires by removing the restraints from without and removing the restraints from within. I hope this is terrifying to you. It is to me. But we'll get to that more in a moment. Because there's another scene to be acted out. Have you ever been to a play where, uh, where the same actor plays a different role in different scenes? Maybe changing the wardrobe in between? Well, that's essentially what we have when we get to verse 15 when the Lord said to Zechariah, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. And in verse 15, Zechariah is no longer portraying the good shepherd. He is taking on the role of the worthless shepherd. So who is the worthless shepherd? Well, he looks a lot like the earlier shepherds that we've described. The ones who seek their own good at the expense of the flock, destroying the flock. But more than looking like those shepherds, there there seems to be something a little bit more at play. There's an intentional contrast here 
between the good shepherd and this worthless shepherd. The good shepherd points to Jesus. So in the contrast, we see that the worthless shepherd must point to some authority over the bad shepherds. This worthless shepherd, rather than caring for the flock, is bent on consuming them. John chapter 10 lays out this contrast for us as well. As Jesus calls Himself the Good Shepherd, more than calling Himself the Good Shepherd, He says, I am the Good Shepherd. In the I am, He is declaring His divinity. And He's saying that as God, He is the Good Shepherd. But He goes on to tell us that the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Yet, in contrast to the good shepherd, there is a thief. And the thief has come not to lay down his life for the sheep, but to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's John 10. John 8 makes it a little bit more clear. This thief is a singular person. The devil is the father of of lies. He is a murderer and has been from the beginning, and all who follow in his footsteps are his children. They follow in his ways. Now, you may be sitting here thinking to yourself, why? Why, Lord, would you have Zechariah act out this worthless shepherd? Or maybe more importantly, why would you raise this worthless shepherd up? We're starting to get to this transition away from the illustrations of the text to the implications of it. First implication that we've got to consider is that this is meant to be a warning to the wandering sheep. There is a narrative in our world today that says, if, if God is good, if God is powerful, then He will only bring good things to me, and oh, by the way, I will define what those good things are and what we mean by good. And if I receive something other than the good things that I have defined, then God must not be either good or powerful or even existent. And in that narrative, there is no place for discipline. I want to be careful on two fronts. The first front is this. We must not be, I must not be, we must not be callous to the pain that many in our body and in our world are experiencing, the pain that many of us are feeling right now on many fronts, either physically or emotionally, the turmoil in our own families, the reality of our own jobs, that pain is real. And if you are feeling that pain right now, I do not mean in any way to minimize it, and I implore you, do not walk through that pain on your own. If you are in the midst of that pain, 
it, is, it must be bringing before your heart a series of, of deep questions that, that demand thoughtful responses or at the very least, thoughtful conversation. Do not walk through this pain on your own. Please, come to me. Come to Michael. Come to our elders and deacons and process that pain together. The Lord our God is not callous with your pain and He has called us as shepherds of His church to enter in. That is the first uh, caution I offer. But the second is this. Not all difficult seasons of pain are a result of disobedience. I'm not painting a broad brush with what I'm about to say. But having said that, the Father disciplines His children. That's what a good father does. And a good father disciplines the children whom He loves. And at times, that discipline looks an awful lot like punishment. So why send this punishment? We struggle with this. It's the, it's the question of pain. And when we try and answer that question of pain with our own devices, it sends us in some dangerous directions. But Scripture actually speaks to it. In Amos chapter 4, there is a series of questions and answers that uh, the Lord would speak through the prophet Amos. And, and there is a near repeat in Haggai chapter 2. In Amos chapter 4, the Lord answers some of this question of why is there discipline when He, he says essentially, I withheld rain from you, yet you did not return to me. I sent among you a pestilence, yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you, yet you did not return to me. Do you hear what the Lord is saying? He sent difficulty. He sent hardship. He sent hard things. And the purpose of that was not to drive us away, but to cause us to return to Him. How do we, though, receive these acts of discipline? We either reject God as... reject His existence, or reject relationship with Him. Yet, they are sent to us to wake us from slumber. The Lord does these things to draw His children back in. If you are a parent, then you know, or you need to know, that sometimes the most difficult, yet most needful thing a parent can do is let the child fall. Because when we spend our lives as parents never letting them fall, there are deep and important lessons that they fail to learn. If that is true for us as earthly parents, it is much more true for God the Father. Why does the Lord send these acts of discipline I want to be careful in trying to say that I'm capturing all of it, but following the Word of God, we see that the Lord draws us back in this way because He is most glorified and we are most blessed 
When we are living in intimate, dependent, obedient union with Him. And when we move away from Him and toward self, He will disrupt the very foundation of our lives in order to awaken us from our self-centered slumber. Does that God fit into your picture of who the Lord is to be? This is a big God. This is a holy God. This is an eternal God who is not dependent upon your temporal thoughts of who He is and what He should do. This is a big God who will move heaven and earth to secure relationship with His home. And this text gives us three examples of the discipline that He will send when we, as His sheep, wander away from Him. Number one, He will allow attack from the outside. Number two, He will give us over to internal division and strife. And number three, He can give us over to worthless shepherds. Does that terrify you? Do do you look around and and consider the disunity that exists? I'm not even focused on the world. I'm talking about within the church. The ways that we have put our focus on politics or, or race or how we respond to the coronavirus, and we let those be our main focus instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the disunity that exists, and do you see where that comes from? But do you see that the Lord our God will allow it removing the restraints in order to draw us back in to right relationship with Him and His people? This is a wondering to the one... This is, There's a warning to the wandering sheep. And so which way will we go? Further away or nearer to Him? That is our warning. But He goes beyond the warning when He deals with the worthless shepherd. To the worthless shepherd He offers a woe. A woe is a pronouncement of judgment. And he details that judgment in verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. This woe renders the worthless shepherd impotent, striking his sword-bearing arm, causing him to grow blind not able to enact on his ruthless desires for the sheep. Then, in the fullness of Scripture, we see this woe will one day culminate in eternal torment and destruction. So which shepherd will the earthly shepherds take their cues from? Jesus seems to connect the worthless shepherd to those who would follow. Extending this woe in Matthew chapter 18, we see the difference between the warning to the sheep and the woe to the shepherds. Matthew 18, 
verses uh, 5 through 7, Jesus said this, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. This woe is serious. This woe is final. But notably, the woe is offered to the worthless shepherd and not to the wandering sheep. It's parallels to this in Genesis chapter 3. In Adam and Eve's fall into sin, a fall that came at the hands of the temptation from the serpent. There is, there is punishment, discipline meted out on Adam and Eve, but there is something greater meted out on the serpent. Adam and Eve were disciplined for their fall. They were punished for their fall. And you and I experience that punishment to this day. But the Lord God did not curse them. Go back to Genesis 3 and read it. The curse in Genesis 3 was uttered over the serpent. And that curse was a promise that one day there would come a Redeemer who would crush His head, destroying His effectiveness and in due time destroying Him. It was the glimmer of hope that Adam and Eve needed. And friends, there is a glimmer of hope for us in this text, even though it is veiled. Zechariah dramatically pointed to Jesus in his ministry as the good shepherd, but he also dramatically pointed to Jesus and the betrayal that he would receive in his ministry. When Zechariah broke favor, he asked the sheep traders for his wages. They gave him what we may not recognize, but was an insulting offer. The 30 pieces of silver undervalued his work, and the Lord told him to throw those pieces of silver back into the temple, to the potter. Fast forward to the New Testament, and we see the Gospel accounts describe Jesus' betrayal. Betrayal at the hands of Judas. Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver for Jesus' life. Zechariah's work was undervalued. Jesus' life was undervalued. And then Judas, in his guilt, threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, and the priest then bought the potter's field with that money as a burial plot. Don't you see, friends, Zechariah was forsaken by the sheep and the shepherds, but Jesus, as the true good shepherd, was forsaken by the flock, by the shepherds, and ultimately on the cross by the Father. And this was all foretold hundreds of years before Jesus would come, but more than that, it was foretold the very beginning of time, and Jesus, knowing all that would await Him, came. 
We tend to look at prophecy by connecting the dots, but this prophecy was very personal for the Good Shepherd. He knew in coming what His mission would be, and He knew that His people would forsake Him, and yet He came knowing. Why would He do this? He took it all on. So that the cycle of sin and destruction might be broken. He took it all on to bring the crushing blow to the worthless shepherd. Who did He do this for? He did it for the wandering sheep that the Lord is warning in this passage. He did it for you and for me. And Isaiah 53 speaks so clearly to our confusion over what's going on, but ultimately to Jesus' mission in Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us Peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Friends, the Good Shepherd came. And the Good Shepherd became the sacrificial lamb so that the cycle might be broken. Will you heed the warning? Will you continue to go your own way? Or will you cling to the Good Shepherd? Father, this this imagery, this word is clear in pointing us to Jesus our Savior and reminding us and and putting before us the reality of our sin. And I pray that You that you would press this message deep on the hearts of every man, woman, and child in this room. Of every man, woman, and child who might be listening elsewhere to this sermon. That you might draw us in. Would you do it for your glory and for our good? In Christ's name, amen.